As we've mentioned throughout the service, today is one of our Q&A Sundays, and so this is something that we do on a fairly regular basis, a couple of times a year, as an opportunity to be able to wrestle through some of the questions that we've got, and uh, so there's a number of questions that have either been put in the question box over the last couple of weeks, or some questions that we had saved up that we haven't gotten to when we've done these services before. And these Q&A Sundays are really, really important um, from my perspective, because it is a great opportunity to remind us that it's okay for us to have questions. Sometimes we can get trapped into thinking that following Jesus is about us having everything together, knowing everything, being fully confident and being able to move forward in that. But all of us know, if we're honest, that we struggle with things and we wrestle with things. And at different times in our journey, we question things and say, but I don't understand how all of this works. And so Q&A Sundays are an opportunity for us to say, that's totally okay. For us as a spiritual family, that's why we're here, is to process through those questions and the doubts and the things that we're wrestling with. I love Q&A Sundays because it is a great opportunity for me to be able to learn some things. So regularly you ask questions that I don't know the answers to, and so I need to do some research and do some looking up of different things, and so I always learn a lot when we do these, and so this is not me standing up saying, look at me, I've got all the answers and I know everything. This is me being in a place where I have the privilege of being able to do some extra week during, uh, extra work during the week uh, to get ready for this. And for all of us, as we continue to follow Jesus, Jesus, as we continue to read scripture, as we continue to wrestle with who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, as we continue to wrestle with Jesus' teaching, there should be questions that are coming up for us regularly or we're not reading enough. Because the reality is that when we engage with who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are because of that and the ways in which we live our lives in our culture, there should be things that kind of make us say, yeah, but how does this work? Or how does this fit with what's going on around me? So inside of Caring Connection, you have your teaching notes and they're blank because you can write down whatever you want. But there is a section down the bottom that gives you an opportunity to write down questions because I recognise that sometimes when we say, give us your questions over the next couple of weeks, you might not think of any during that time. And so if you think of any questions during today's message that are related to things that we're talking about or not, please make sure you write them down today. And you can give those to me after the service or you can email me or text me or uh, write them down and give them to me another time uh, because we do then save these up for the next time that we do one. So our first question today is one that's helpful as we come close to Easter that says, I think Easter is worked out by the moon. Is that right? And the answer is yes. The full answer to this question is that Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the March equinox, which is pretty clear, isn't it? So we can move on from that. That makes perfect sense. No, maybe not. So we might just look at that a little bit. So twice a year, we have what's called the equinox, where we have the same amount of daytime and nighttime along the equator. So 12 hours of daytime and 12 hours of nighttime. So that happens once in March and it happens once in September. Because it's complicated with time zones and how that all fits together, there's a wide agreement that the March equinox is on March 21st each year. And so Easter is then the first Sunday that comes after the first full moon that comes after March the 21st. So why the first full moon after March 21st? Well, that's because the first full moon after the equinox is called a Pascal moon, and Pascal is the Aramaic word for Passover. And so the Passover always happened the first full moon after the March equinox back in the day for Jewish people. 
For us, obviously, we don't celebrate the Passover. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection, which is why we have the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the March equinox. So that's why sometimes Easter's really early and sometimes it's really late. This year, it's pretty much as late as it can possibly be because the full moon is on March the 21st. So the next full moon after March 21st is not until April the 19th. And so Easter Sunday this year is on April the 21st. So it's really, really late. That's good for us because it gives us a really good lead into Easter. So we're actually going to spend some time leading up to Easter, uh, doing a series for what's called Lent. And Lent is a season leading up to Easter where we have an opportunity to be able to prepare ourselves for what happens and what we uh, celebrate on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And so we're going to do a series that's called Road Trip where we're going to go on a journey towards the cross and uh, where we're going to look at some different stories that happen on the road in all sorts of different ways during Jesus' time and uh, see what we can learn about that as we get ready for Easter. A side note on this one is that Orthodox churches, so we have some friends who are Greek Orthodox, you might have some friends who are Russian Orthodox, and you may know that their Easter weekend is sometimes on a different weekend to ours. The reason for that is because they use the Julian calendar to work out their dates, and we use the Gregorian calendar, but that's a question that wasn't asked, so I'm not going to get into the rest of that today, but that's why it's different. All right, next question. Who wrote the book of Genesis? This is a really, really good question because in lots of the books of the Bible that we have, it says this book was written by this person and so the author will explain who they are and sometimes they'll even explore why they wrote the book. But with Genesis, we don't actually have that. But there's wide agreement that the person who wrote Genesis is the same person who actually wrote the first five books of the Old Testament and his name is Moses. And so that's our understanding is that Moses wrote Genesis uh, and also Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's also understood that all the content that's in those five books was actually floating around for quite some time. So especially through oral tradition that people knew all of the stories that were a part of Genesis through to Deuteronomy. Uh, And some of those things were written down on stone tablets and other places. But Moses is the one who kind of collates it all together and puts it all into the format that we've got it in today. Next question. About the water into wine miracle in John chapter 2. Why did Jesus say that his time had not yet come, but then do what his mother asked him? Why was it not yet his time? So, unpack what this looks like. This story is in John chapter 2, and so you can read about it if you want to. Uh, But it's a story where Jesus is going to a wedding in a town called Cana. His mother, Mary, and also Jesus and some of his disciples had been invited along to this wedding. And there's a huge tragedy that happens in the midst of this wedding feast. They run out of wine. It's terrible. This is a huge scandal because you can't run out of wine at a wedding feast in Jesus' day. And so when the wine runs out, Mary comes over to Jesus and says to him, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus' response is, you must not tell me what to do. My time has not yet come, which we'll unpack more in a second. But Mary says to the servants who are standing around, do whatever Jesus tells you. And so for what was standing around at the time, were all of these big pots that Jewish people would use to wash their hands before they ate. was something that was a really important ceremony for them to make sure that they washed themselves and cleaned themselves before they ate food. And so Jesus says to the servants, go and fill these big pots up with some more water. 
and then when they've done that, they come back, and then they go and take some of this water to the master of ceremonies for the wedding, and he has some, and he says, this is the most amazing wine that I've ever had. And he says to the groom, nice work. This is really, really good wine that we've got going on here. And so this is understood as the first miracle that Jesus performs in his public ministry. So we need to unpack some context about what's going on here and then we'll get to the question specifically. Weddings in Jesus' day went for a really, really long time. So they would sometimes go for over a week. So it's not like the weddings that we go to where there's a service and then a little bit later on there's a reception for a few hours and that's kind of done. This was something that went on and on and on and lots of food and lots of parties and lots of music and lots of dancing and lots of celebrating and wine as a part of that. And so if you ran out of wine in the midst of this, it wasn't a case where you could just pop down to the shops and buy another couple of bottles of wine and hope that that was going to get you through the rest of the wedding. This was a pretty significant problem that they'd run out of wine. We don't know at what point during the wedding this is all happening, but there could be days that are left still and there's no wine for the guests to be able to drink. So Mary says, Jesus, you can do something. Help them out with this. And so Jesus replies and says what seems a little harsh. He says, you must not tell me what to do in verse 4. Now, it's probably better for us to translate that as what concern is that to you and I? That's really what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to Mary, okay, well, that's sad, but I'm not sure why that's your problem or why that's my problem exactly. And then he says these words, which is what the question is about. My time has not yet come. Jesus actually says this phrase a number of times throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, where we read about Jesus' life. He regularly says, my time has not yet come in all sorts of different circumstances. And what he's really saying there is it's not time yet for people publicly to understand who I really am, that I am the Messiah, I am the rescuer, I am the one who's going to do everything to make people right in their relationship with God. It's not time for that to be known publicly yet. And the reason for that is that Jesus wasn't after popularity, he wasn't after fame, he wasn't after a bunch of people who were going to come and follow him as a big crowd. He came to help us understand what God is like and to understand what it looks like to live the lives that God created us to live. And he knew that if doing a miracle like this suddenly brought a crowd where people were like, oh, this guy's amazing, look at him, we should go and follow him, everything would kind of go sideways. And so as Roger touched on around communion, it's not actually until the cross that Jesus is in a place where he's willing to say, now is the time for it to be revealed who I am. Because we really understand what Jesus came to do through the events that unfold during Easter week, through his death and through his resurrection. So what Jesus is saying to Mary is, it's not time yet for me to show that I am the one who's going to make people right with God. So I can't do a miracle that everyone's going to see uh, and have that revealed. It's not time. So Mary then replies and says to the servants around, do whatever he tells you to do. And so there's a couple of ways we can interpret this. First is that Mary wasn't actually listening to Jesus. And and she said, yeah, 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 whatever. Just he's going to do something, so get ready. But there's also an understanding that Mary may have just been saying, I'm leaving it up to Jesus now. And so if he tells you to do something, then do it. But if he doesn't respond, then so be it. She's kind of leaving it in his hand. The confusing part is that Jesus seems to indicate he doesn't want to do this miracle, and yet then he goes ahead and he does it anyway, which is a part of the question that's been asked. 
So why would Jesus say, I don't want to do this thing yet, and then go ahead and do it? There's a few schools of thought. The first is that Jesus just wanted to show his love and his respect for his mum. It's a really, really important part of Jewish culture to respect your parents, regardless of the age that you are. And so Jesus may have just done it so that Mary didn't look bad, and because he knew this was important to Mary, and so he went ahead and did it. It could have also been that Jesus did this simply because he understood that the bridegroom, who was responsible for providing all of the food and all of the wine, was in a pretty significant bind here. And so Jesus felt empathy and compassion for them and so did something about it. It's actually understood that this family who were having this wedding were probably a family that were close, at least with Mary, if not with Jesus. And so they were people who knew each other pretty well. And so Jesus might have just been, I've got to help my friend out and so I'm going to do this miracle. But there's also an understanding that Jesus may have understood that there was something really symbolic that God could do through this miracle. In taking this ceremonial act of saying, I need to wash my hands before I eat in order for me to stay right with God, Jesus takes that away and replaces that with wine, this beautiful symbol of feasting and of celebration and of life and of what the kingdom, life the way that we're designed to live it, actually looks like. And so Jesus is like, this is actually something that can send a pretty clear message about what I'm here to do. But the key thing that we can recognise is that there's not actually any tension in Jesus performing this miracle and him saying, my time has not yet come. Because the only people who see Jesus do the miracle are the few servants who are standing around and Mary, and maybe a couple of Jesus' disciples. When the wine is taken out to the master of ceremonies, he actually says to the bridegroom, hey, nice work saving up this really, really good wine until now. Most people bring the good wine out at the start and then save the cheap stuff when people don't care quite so much. But you've saved the best till last. This is good work. Thank you, bridegroom. So the master of ceremonies clearly doesn't know that Jesus has done this miracle. I'm sure the bridegroom was like, this is really good. I don't know where it came from, but hey, (laughs) drink up. That's great. The only people who knew were some quiet people who were in the background. And so Jesus is able to perform this miracle for any of the reasons that we've just said, but also is able to say, my time has not yet come for people publicly to understand who I am. Hopefully that's a helpful answer to that question. All right, next question that we're going to look at today is along a similar theme, another question around a wedding. Could you please explain Matthew chapter 22, Verses 1 to 14. Why was one poor guy thrown out because he wasn't wearing wedding clothes? So this is a parable that Jesus told, and parables are stories that Jesus used as a teaching tool that had significant amounts of layered meaning underneath them. So they're good as a story, but there's also a ton of really important meaning that's underneath them. So this is the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 22. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like this. Once there was a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to tell the invited guests to come to the feast, but they didn't want to come. So he sent other servants with his message for the guests. My feast is ready now. My steers and my prize calves have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But the invited guests paid no attention and went about their business. One went to his farm, another to his store, while others grabbed the servants, beat them and killed them. The king was very angry, so he sent his soldiers who killed those murderers and burned down their city. Then he called his servants and said to them, My wedding feast is ready, but the people I invited didn't deserve it. Now go to the main streets and invite to the feast as many people as you can find. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, good and bad alike, and the wedding hall was filled with people. The king went in to look at the guests and saw a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The king asked him. But the man said nothing. Then the king told the servants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him outside in the dark. There he will cry and gnash his teeth. And Jesus concluded, many are invited, but few are chosen. So there's a fair bit for us to unpack as we look at this parable. This parable is one that Jesus used to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And whenever we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we're really helping to understand what Jesus is teaching us about what it looks like to live the way that we were created to live, to live life the way that God designed it. And Jesus often uses parables with some pretty stark imagery in it, some pretty strong language at different times, so that he can get his point across. It's not necessarily supposed to be taken literally that this is exactly what's going on, but as I said, there's layered meaning underneath it. So in this parable, the king is understood to be God himself. The son who is having this wedding is understood to be Jesus, and the wedding feast is the arrival of the kingdom, the opportunity for us to be able to live the way that we're created to live. And so that is something to have a big celebration about, that the king God has said that the son is going to get married, is going to fulfill what he had come to do. And so the king, God, sends out servants to tell people this wedding feast is about to happen. And so the understanding of that is that that's people like the prophets and other messengers who've come over the centuries to tell people the feast is on. Jesus is coming to do this amazing work of making us right with God. The invited guests are understood to be the Israelites, God's chosen people, the people who God walked with to help them understand what all this was supposed to be about. But these messengers, these prophets, have come to the Israelites over the centuries and people haven't responded. In fact, Jesus says there's three different ways that they have reacted to it. Some people have paid no attention. They've just ignored it. They're not interested. Other translations talk about treating the message with contempt, or paying it of no consequence, that they were indifferent to the message. They were like, eh, whatever, I don't really care, that's interesting, but it's not for me. Some people have said, sorry, I've got other things to do. And it's interesting that they're not just being lazy, one of them's gone to their farm, one of them's gone to their store. So they're people who've said, I've got too much to do, thanks for the invite, but I've got too much else in my life right now, I'm not interested in responding to this message that you've got for me. And then there's a third group who grab the servants, beat them, and kill them. And so this is the recognition that over the centuries, a lot of the prophets and the messengers that God sent to help people understand who he was and what he was about were beaten or killed. And as we then project forward, that happened in the early church as well. A lot of the first followers of Jesus were killed because of their faith and because they were the ones who were sharing the message about Jesus too. So then we have this little bit of a complicated piece where it says that the king, God, then sent his soldiers to wipe out their city and to kill them. Seems a little bit harsh, but this is actually Jesus being prophetic and looking forward to 70 AD when we know that the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They came in and they wiped it all out. And so that's what Jesus is talking about there. But the key message of this parable comes in verse 10 where Jesus says the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, good and bad alike, and the wedding hall was filled with people. 
So Jesus helps us to understand that God tried to journey with the Israelites for a long time and they just said, we're not interested or reacted in all sorts of different ways. And so God eventually says, all right, throw the doors open. And the language of going out into the streets is actually go to all the different intersections of the major highways, the places where there's as many people as possible who are going to come past and invite everyone to come along to the feast. doesn't matter whether they're good people or bad people, just invite them and tell them that they're really, really welcome. Not going to worry just about this chosen group, the Israelites, now everyone, Israelite and non-Israelite, everyone is welcome to come along. And so it would be really great if the parable stopped there and Jesus just throws open the doors and says, yes, God is so welcoming and invites everyone in. But he doesn't, and that's where the question comes up. In verse 11, this weird interaction then happens with the king. The king went in to look at the guests and saw a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The king asked him. But the man said nothing. And then the king told the servants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him out in the dark. There he will cry and gnash his teeth. So it seems a little bit harsh here. So is what Jesus is saying is that the doors are thrown wide open, everyone's invited in, but there is a bit of a catch. You better make sure that you've got yourself together. You better make sure that you've put on the best clothes, cowboy boots included, that you can to be able to come along to this wedding. Yes, you're invited, but you better make sure that you look good before you show up. And this is a really, really great reminder again for us about the importance of context, that everything that we read about in Scripture is written in a specific time to a specific group of people who were living in a specific culture where there was a whole bunch of things that sometimes we can not actually understand if we don't do some homework. Particularly in this parable, what we need to understand is that if you were invited along to a royal wedding, it wasn't up to you to go and find some really, really nice clothes. When you turned up to the wedding, the king would have all of these garments, rooms and rooms full of wedding clothes, the best clothes you can possibly imagine, for you to put on. So you didn't need to go and buy a suit or buy a nice dress and then turn up to the wedding. You would show up in your normal clothes and when you got to the wedding, you'd be escorted in and then you'd be given amazing clothes to put on to participate in the wedding feast that, as we said just before, would often go on for days. So this is a really, really important piece for us to recognise because this is not a guy who is poor and doesn't have enough money to go and buy some nice clothes and shows up to the wedding and the king says, how dare you show up looking like that, get out of here. This is a person who has actually made a choice to say, even though you, king, are willing to give me everything that I need to be a part of everything that's going on here, I'm actually not interested. I don't want to put on your clothes. I just want to stay exactly the way that I am. Thank you very much. I'm not interested in changing in any way. I just want to be able to be myself and not have to do anything different than what I've been doing before. And so this is where the meaning of the parable really kicks in to another gear. Yes, God invites everyone to come into the feast. We're all invited, regardless of our background, regardless of who we are, to be a part of the work that God is doing. And not only that, But God has done everything necessary for us to fully participate in that. God's given us all the clothes. We don't have to get ourselves together enough in order to be accepted. When we approach God, he says, here, here's everything you need to be able to live life the way that I created you to live. But there is a level of submission and a level of humility that we need to embrace in order to say, for me to step into this, 
I need to be willing to let go of selfishness. I need to be willing to let go of anger. I need to get rid of lust. I need to get rid of self-centeredness. All the stuff that isn't the way that we were designed to live. We need to embrace the clothing that God wants us to wear, to be others-centered, to be patient, to be forgiving, to be kind. All of these things that we know are at the heart and character of God. We have to make sure we get that the right way around. We don't have to do all of those things so that we're invited. We're invited and we're accepted. And so now God says, live like it. Live the way that you've been created to live. And that can be a bit hard for us, especially in our Western culture, because we can kind of resist anything where we're told what to do. It's like, I want to live how I want to live. Thank you very much. Don't tell me what I need to wear. Don't tell me how I need to behave. But if we have that mindset, we've kind of missed the whole point. If you were invited along to a close friend's wedding, let's say someone who decided that they were going to have this amazing wedding that was somewhere that was overseas and so they were going to pay for you to come along on this beautiful holiday and they said, I don't want you to have any expenses whatsoever. I'm going to pay for your flights. I'm going to pay for your hotel. I'm going to pay for the clothes for you to wear while you're on this holiday. I just want you to be a part of this amazing moment in my life. If a friend did that for you, then your response would be, wow, that's so amazing. And you would throw yourself into it fully. You wouldn't resist and say, no, thank you very much. I want to be able to do this myself. You would simply say thank you and participate. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across with this parable, is to say all of us have been invited to the beautiful wedding feast of Jesus and the church to be able to live life the way that we're created to live. And everything's been done. It's been given to us to live life that way. So the question we're left with is, am I going to embrace that? Am I willing to say, yes, God, to the way that you want me to live my life and push aside all the stuff that isn't a part of the way that we were created to live? So I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up today. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that you might have written some other questions down today. If you have, as I said, feel free to give them to me. Or if you think of some during the week or at any time, please make sure you send those through because I do keep a record of them in preparation for these. So let's wrap up with a time of prayer. God, thanks again that you are happy for us to engage with the questions that we have and to wrestle with the different things about what it means for us to be able to follow you, King Jesus. And we thank you in particular for these couple of parables that we have been reminded about, or this parable and this story, Jesus, about the wedding that you were at, that you have shown us over and over and over again through Scripture, that it's not about us getting our lives together enough. It's about us recognising who you are, what you have done for us, that you've done everything that's needed for us to be able to experience life the way that we were created to live. This thing that you call the kingdom, being able to live the way that we're going to get to experience life in that time when we pass from this life into the next and live in heaven. You've given us the opportunity to live those things out in the here and now. Today, this week, we can live those things out. And say thank you that you invite us into that, that you equip us with everything that we need for life. And so I pray that as we head into this week, that you would challenge us in those moments where we resist that, that you would challenge us in those moments where we feel like we need to get ourselves together enough, that you would challenge us in those moments where we think, yeah, but I need to make sure that I've done something. And those all get in the way of us just being able to accept this free gift that you have given to us. Help us as we go into this week to feel inspired and encouraged 
that you don't ask us to do anything so that we'll be accepted. You simply accept us as we are and then encourage us to live the way that you know we means that we get to experience life as you always wanted us to be able to experience it. So as we head into this week, we pray that you continue to help us to wrestle with our questions, but to move forward step by step with courage in the reality that we're fully accepted as your family, that we're fully loved as we are. In your name we pray. Amen.